We're going to continue this series we started last week called Entrapment. And I'm going to start off by telling you a story that many of you guys probably know. You don't even have to really be a, a believer to know this story. It's kind of in our popular culture, but it's a story that Jesus tells about two people who went to go and went out, they set out to build a house. And one of them wanted to build a house. And so they found a nice, sturdy rock. Uh, and probably in the Rocky Mountains somewhere, I don't know. But they found this nice rock, and they put their house on it. And uh, somebody else, they, they found a, a nice spot out on the beach. They put their house in the sand. And then the storm came. By the way, this is just a, you know, Jesus putting his you know, vote in for mountain people. That's all that is, okay, if you just want to know. Um, but <laughs> so you guys know the story. You know, the, they built, both built houses, rock, sand, storm comes, wind blows. And then what happens? The, the one that didn't have a solid foundation was on the sand. It, it crumbles. It falls apart. Now, all of us, I think we want, obviously, we want to be the type of people that build our lives on a solid foundation so that when the storms of life come, that when the problems of life come or when temptations come, that at the end of it, at the end of our life, how many of you guys want to still be standing on the rock of Jesus, right? We, we all want to be there. But, but here's what I want you to see in that story. I'm going to put this up on the screen, uh, but... I've said it before, but here's what I really want you to catch. Satan has a counterfeit for every purpose of God in your life. He has something that looks close, that looks almost right, that looks pretty near, and, and it's got a lot of similarities. But he's got a counterfeit for every purpose of God. Every good thing that God wants to do, Satan has a temptation out there, and that's what Jesus is illustrating. He's like, it's, they're both houses. They're both probably really nice views, but... The, the problem was one of them was a counterfeit, something that looked close enough. And if he can get you to the close enough, then he's got you in a trap, right? And so we talked about entrapment last week as something, it's a scheme of the devil to try to cause us to take a detour in life from the purposes of God and the plan of God on our life. And the path uh, to the counterfeit the, you know, this counterfeit option that's out there that all of us are facing, right? All of us are facing probably several counterfeit options right now. The path to get there is something called compromise. And it's the trap that I want to talk about today is the trap of compromise because it's the path to the counterfeit. Now, we're anchoring this study out of the life of Peter around the resurrection of Jesus and out of John chapter 21, but we, we first have to set up this story by going back before Jesus was crucified, all the way back to what we call the Last Supper or the Passover meal, uh, communion as we know it. And they are having this last moment together. They get done, you know, eating the supper, and Judas goes out to betray and all that stuff. And they go out to the Mount of Olives. They begin to sing some songs. And at the end of it, in Mark chapter 14, verse 29, Peter says to Jesus, you know, because Jesus says, hey, there's going to be some rough stuff happening, right? And Peter says to Jesus, he's like, even if all, they all fall away, he's talking about the other disciples. I mean, he's been running with these guys for the last three years, right? But he, he calls them out. He's like, even if they fall away, I will not. I won't fall away. And Jesus said to him, he said, truly, truly, I tell you that this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But then Peter, you know, he he's, you know, stands his ground. He says emphatically, he's like, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. 
I mean, that's, I mean, he's digging, he's planting his tree, right? He's planting his flag right there. He's like, if I have to die, I'm not going to deny you. Now, sometimes we give Peter a bad rap because he's always, you know, he's always speaking out. The Bible kind of highlights him. But look, it says, and they all said the same, every single one of them. But we know, you know, Jesus goes on. He's betrayed in the garden. He's being led to, uh, to Caiaphas and to Pontius Pilate and all of them to, to go through the process of he's eventually going to get beaten and, you know, the crown of thorns and mocked and on his way to the cross. But as he's going there, the Bible says that Peter followed at a distance. How many times do we follow at a distance? Just enough where we're near enough to be able to see Jesus, but we're following at a distance. He follows at a distance. And in Mark chapter 14, verse 66, it says, And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You are also with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it. Here we are just like within hours of Peter saying, I'll die before I'll deny and here he denies, and he says, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out to, into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. It's like strike one, right? And the rooster crowed. What's interesting about this, we're talking about counterfeits. Peter, by doing this, by denying Jesus, is actually trying to save himself. But in trying to save himself, he's running away from salvation happening in front of him, right? It's this counterfeit that if you could save your own life, but how many of you guys know that Jesus says, if you want to save your life, you must lose your life, right? And so here, Peter takes the bait and he goes into the trap of compromise in order to try to save himself, to take a counterfeit uh, path that is through the path of compromise. Now, let me just say this. The safest place that you can be is in the will of God for your life. It doesn't matter how dangerous that is externally. It doesn't matter how tumultuous that seems externally. It doesn't matter how chaotic that may be to other people, but the very safest place you could be is in the center of God's will for your life. You see, P Peter was trying to keep himself safe by creating his own will rather than living in God's will, right? It's this trap of compromise. So let, how do we fall into this trap? Well, let me give you some thoughts on the trap of compromise. Number one, compromise is the result of compartmentalization. It's where we have these different compartments in our life, how we divide up our life. We have our work life, and we have a certain set of rules and habits and ways that we behave in our work life that look a little different than our home life. We have a certain way that we behave and certain things that go into this container. And then we have our church life, and we have a certain way that we interact with our church friends and at church this is called compartmentalization, where we have different compartments in which we live differently when we're in them, right? So Peter had compartmentalization going on in his life because he's one way around Jesus and his church-going friends, the disciples. But then when he goes out and he starts to warm himself by the fires of the world and it gets a little bit challenging, he has a totally different way of interacting and behaving, right? So how many times do we yield to this idea of compartmentalization? Uh, that, how, how many of you guys love social media? Anybody just love social media? Some of you guys, I know you actually do, so I'm not trying to set you up. But uh, Instagram, if you look at Instagram, Instagram you know, really kind of started off as this photo app to kind of show all these beautiful photos and look at what you're doing in life and look how beautiful this is with all these photos. And, these, and, and it's become kind of a perfectionist type thing. You want to create an ideal you know, picture of what you're doing or yourself or whatever it is, right? 
Well, how many of you guys have heard of this new social media, this app that's out called Be Real? Is anybody anybody's on Be Real? Some of you guys are. So for those of you guys who don't know about it, Be Real, I think it's really trying to be the anti-Instagram. Because Be Real is basically, it gives you a two-minute window, and it, and it signals you at some random point in the day and gives you a two-minute window to take a photo of whatever's really happening in your life. Like whatever it is, you got two minutes to just take a photo. And, it takes, and it's a two-way camera, so it takes a photo of what you're looking at and your face, right, as you're doing it. And so it's trying to be the anti-Instagram to just say, hey, stop trying to curate and you know, cultivate this perfect moment. Let's see what you're really doing, right? And it's this be real. Now, uh, my last, I, th I think on Friday, one of my be real, my, my moment was I was walking out in my yard. The, gra the grass is all, you know, brown and, and disgusting looking. And it was the backside of my dog as I'm like walking out there. That was my be real, right? And so even though I like, I love the idea of like, yeah, let's push back. There's always a temptation still to try to well, what if I could put myself in, just wait just a little bit longer to while I'm doing something a little more interesting, a little less boring, a little more, you know, uh, that looks like I have a better life than what I actually have, right? So even in that, there's this temptation. Why? Because we don't want to truly let everybody, we say we want to be real, but we don't really want to let people into that compartment of our life that quite honestly sometimes is boring, Sometimes there's not a lot going on there. Sometimes it's just, it's not as fun as all the other times. And so we want to keep a compartment that even if we say we're being real, we still want to cultivate a picture of what that compartment looks like that's actually different from what it actually is, right? Do you see how subtle this is and how it happens in, and pervasive it is in all of life? And so what happens is when we have these compartments, we get these compartments in our life because we're actually trying to manage our risk, kind of like mutual fund our life, right? And we're trying to manage risk because we've got our work life, our church life, our family life, our home life, our whatever, our, our hobby life, our vacation life. And each one of these has a different set of cultures and how we behave. And, and how it goes is like this. We think, well, if I can keep all of these separate, if one of them falls, like if my work life crumbles, at least I have these still intact. Or if my church life crumbles, at least I have my work life intact and my career is on track. And so we keep these compartments as a way to try to manage risk. The problem is we end up creating a new type of risk. Because what we now have many times is we have a sacred life and a secret life. And whenever we have a sacred life and a secret life or a a life that we pretend is our real life and then our real life, how many of you guys know we have now created a brand new set of risks? See, integrity has to do with the whole. Integrity is not compartmentalized. And so I would, I would say it this way. Compartmental integrity is hypocrisy. So if you just have integrity in one compartment... Let's say you have integrity in your church box, but when you go to your work life, you have a certain set of rules by which you behave that looks anything but following Jesus. Or you may skew the rules a little bit. You may have, quote unquote, integrity in this compartment, but not integrity in this compartment. And compartmental integrity is actually hypocrisy. 
And now that's not to bring condemnation because all of us are struggling with different things, okay? I'm not, saying, I'm not saying anybody's perfect in this, okay? All we're trying to do today is to allow the Holy Spirit to bring up things in us that maybe need some attention, okay? So there's no condemnation happening today. We just want to invite the Holy Spirit to reveal these things to us so we can lean in to what Jesus wants to do in that particular part of our life. And so uh, Pastor Dwayne Vanderklok says it this way. He says, the devil doesn't need, to, need you to give him every area of your life. Just one will do. Because if he can get one area, then he can leverage that to affect all areas, right? And so we know that Peter denies Jesus the one time, but then it, he keeps going in Mark chapter 14, verse 69, because Jesus prophesied he would do it three times. It says, And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But he again denied it. So there's number two. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them. You're a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself. This is how far he's going. And to swear and say, I do not know this man of who you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Now, I believe it's Luke's version that says that as this happened, as the rooster crowed, that Jesus and Peter locked eyes on one another. Like he was close enough where he could see. And so can you imagine that moment? The rooster crows, he looks up, Jesus turns and looks at him, and all of a sudden he's filled with this moment of realizing what he's done. See, there's this... this this possibility that can happen in us when an area like that is revealed that needs to be dealt with, like attention like that, to put on a mask, to run away, to have shame, to pull back away from Jesus in that moment. But Jesus always invites us into a better way. And so we know that Jesus ends up going to the cross, you know, the, the, the cross where, you know, his blood is spilled, his body is broken, he raises from the dead, and it kind of goes into this interesting time between Jesus and the disciples. He kind of appears at times, he'll like pop into a room just all of a sudden, but he's just kind of all over the place. And Peter and some of the guys say, let's go back fishing. They go back fishing, they're out fishing, and, and they see somebody on the shore and tells them to you know, cast their net on the other side of the boat. They call in 153 fish, and, and they recognize it's Jesus. They jump out of the water, they go back to the sea, and Jesus, going back to the land, and Jesus is inviting specifically Peter into this moment that's a better way to come back after a failure. And he goes and he invites them to have breakfast, a fish breakfast on the sea, right? Have you guys ever had fish for breakfast? Anybody? And he, like, he's, and he's cooking fish on the sea, right? So I'm a, just, just for fun, just to kind of drift into our imagination as to what it would be like to have fish for breakfast, I'm going to take you back to a series I did. How many of you guys remember Food for Thought back in 2020? See, some of you guys weren't here for that. And some of you guys, when we were just like online only for several months, realized, I can listen to any celebrity preacher. Why am I going to listen to Pastor Sean during this time? And so you checked out the whole time. I know you. I know how you did it. So I'm just going to take you just a portion, just for fun, to kind of jog our imagination. What would it be like to have fish for breakfast? Let's watch. There we go. Is this going to be dangerous if we don't, if we eat it without it being fully cooked? I mean... I'm going to call a friend. Is this going to be dangerous? It is going to be dangerous. Okay. Really? Let's Crud. put some pepper. Okay, go ahead and put some pepper on that. I like pepper. A lot. 
put a lot on. Okay. So Jesus is there cooking breakfast for the disciples, and that was a lot of pepper. <laughs> I like a lot. All right, we're going to have to edit some of this out. This is too, taking too long. I have no idea if this is cooked or not. We should add more butter. All right, I think we're getting pretty well done with this thing, so we're going to pull this thing off. This is what we think. Okay, so Jesus cooked a fish breakfast, put a little bit of uh, parsley on there, make that look good. We're going to cut up a little lemon here, put a little lemon juice right on there. Okay, careful. Okay, squeeze a little bit on there like that. Doesn't that look amazing? That looks awesome. That actually looks pretty good. Here's the problem, though. It's supposed to be for breakfast. Oh. Uh. <laughs> Who has fish for breakfast? Hold on, I got an idea. All right, get that. Go ahead and uh, get some milk out there. No. Get some milk. We're going to have some fish cereal. That's what we're going to have. All right, go ahead and pour some milk. We're going to just pour some milk out here. Just like this. There you go. Pour it in. Just pour it in. Quickly, quickly. Okay. There you go, quickly. All right, there you go, that's enough. All right, all right, so we're just gonna put some, uh, just gonna have some fish cereal here today. And uh, we're gonna eat breakfast just like Jesus. All right, let's see. There it is, folks. Let's see how this thing tastes. You know, it's actually not that bad. The only thing that's the problem is the cold milk with the hot fish. Yeah. And that's it, folks. Jesus probably is a better cook than we are, though. <laughs> it actually wasn't that bad. Yeah. All right, just kind of get you in the moment. I'm sure that's how it happened. I'm sure that's how it happened. All right. Uh, so Jesus invites them for a breakfast. They sit down to have breakfast, but Jesus is trying to do something at the breakfast. And in John chapter 21, verse 15, when they had finished breakfast, and I'm sure it went just like that, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? That's an interesting question, because remember, if you go back to when Jesus, or when Peter denied, or when he said, I'm, I will never deny you, and he said, but if these do, I won't. So Peter had something going on, some sort of competition in his heart that I had, he had some unhealthy attachment or connection with what these guys were doing as opposed to what he was doing. And so Jesus is drawing that out. He says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. Jesus was actually, I believe, leading Peter to this question. And the question was this, who do you fear? You seem overly enamored with what these guys are doing. You seem overly enamored with what these guys think. You seem overly, you know, caught up in what you're doing versus what they're doing and how good you are compared to how good they are. And he says, do you love me one of these? I believe he's asking, who do you fear? which is the, leading us to the second thought about compromise, and this is, it's this. Who you fear is who you'll serve. 
See, the reason he was asking that question is because who you fear is who you'll serve. Jesus is inviting Peter to walk in the fear of the Lord rather than the fear of man. See, Peter was caught up, in, and when he, he made that statement, I will never deny you, it was actually the fear of man that was causing him to point out an us versus them. And then when he gets to warming himself by the fire and the, the you know, girl is there saying, hey, aren't you one of them? It was the fear of man, the fear of woman that actually kept him, that actually led him into compromise. It was the fear of man happening all the time. And so Jesus is asking this question, who do you fear? Do you fear me or do you fear them? Do you love me or do you love them? Are, who are you going to serve? Are you going to serve me or are you going to serve their opinions and their, what they've got going on? And so the question then is, what is the fear of the Lord? So I have a couple uh, clips from John Bevere. Some of you guys know who John Bevere is. He has a book uh, on the fear of the Lord. You should check it out. But I want you to listen to his definition of the fear of the Lord. I think it helps us some because sometimes it can be very confusing. So here's John Bevere. You know, the leaders that I'm working with have asked me to share on the aspect of the fear of the Lord. You say, whoa, 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 whoa. God's not giving me a spirit of fear. He's giving me a spirit of power, love, and a sound mind. That's so true. But you have to understand there is a difference between being scared of God and the fear of the Lord. The Bible says when you have the fear of the Lord, there is honor that comes with it. There's riches. There's long life. I could go on and on and on. And I really believe that Moses differentiates differentiates the difference between being scared of God and the fear of the Lord. If you look at Exodus, Moses had taken Israel out of Egypt and he wasn't taking them straight to the promised land. He was first taking them to the mountain where he met with God in the burning bush. Why would Moses want to take him to a promised land without first introducing them to the promiser? When God meets with Moses upon them, that whole nation exiting there from Egypt, God says to Moses, you tell these people the whole reason I delivered them out of the world was to bring them to me. Well, Moses brought the people to God. God came down on the mountain and what did the people do? They screamed, they cried out, and they ran away. And they said, Moses, we cannot handle meeting with God one-on-one -on -one like this. And Moses made this statement. He said in Exodus 20, 20, do not fear because God's come to test you to see if his fear's in you. Now that sounds like a contradiction, but he's not contradicting himself. He's saying, don't be scared of God because God's come to see if his holy fear is in you. The person that is scared of God is something to hide. If you look at Adam, when he sins against God, he runs from the presence of the Lord. The person who fears God has nothing to hide. He's terrified to be away from God. So there's your first definition of the fear of the Lord. It is to be scared or terrified of being away from God. The person that fears God doesn't say, how close can I get to the line of sin and not fall in? That person says, I want so close to God, I can't even see that line of the world or that line of sin. So to fear God is to venerate him. That's a big word. It means to honor, esteem, respect, stand in awe of him above anything or anyone else. We tremble at his presence and we tremble at his word. Now, let me say this. Why is the fear of the Lord so important? Because the Bible says that the fear of the Lord in Proverbs 1-7 is the beginning of knowing God intimately. 
ultimately, if we are going to be effective in bringing the kingdom of God to this earth and bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ to people, we must know God intimately. What stands out about Jesus above everything else? The intimate relationship he had with the Father. He would know things about people without even being told. He would know what people were thinking. He would know the places to go. He would know how to escape mobs that wanted to stone him. He walked in very close relationship with his father. Well, you know what Jesus delighted in? Isaiah chapter 11 tells us. It says, the root of Jesse shall come forth. The spirit of the Lord will be upon him. The spirit of wisdom, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of might, the spirit of knowledge, the spirit of understanding, and the spirit of the fear of the Lord. And then it says his delight Jesus' delight was in the fear of the Lord. Why? Because that is the avenue to having an intimate relationship with God. Amen. So fear of the Lord is not being scared of God, but it's actually, let, let me just put a, another thing in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28 and 29. Remember, this is in the New Testament. By the way, the fear of the Lord isn't just in the Old Testament. I could show you several places specifically where the fear of the Lord is in the New Testament. Here's one that gives us an indication of it. It says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The fear of the Lord, in one way, is the awe and the reverence we ought to have before a holy God, before an awesome God, right? See, God doesn't see our life as compartmentalized anyway. He sees it all, right? And so it's this awe, this reverence, Sometimes I believe we can be too formal before God and we can go through all these rituals and we can be so formal before God that we don't have an intimate relationship with God. But at the same time, I believe sometimes we can be way too casual before God. You know, there, there's a, you know we, we used to have chickens and I found out one, one time that these chickens that we had, this chicken coop, that these foxes had made their den underneath the chicken coop, right? So I drove them out, right? I tried to drive them away. Well, one day I had the, I, I was at my garage, it was about 100 feet, 100 feet or so away from where the chickens were. I let them free range that day. And all of a sudden, this fox was just running around chasing all my chickens and something just clicked on the inside of me. I had something in my hand and I just, went, I just started screaming and running. It had to look crazy, like I was a crazy man. But I'm like driving out this fox. What happened? The fox got a little too casual around me, right? And I, I know that's an imperfect picture. I just, I just know that sometimes we can be too formal before God and sometimes we can be too casual before God because what we look at is what we ultimately change into. If we're looking at the world all the time, we're going to eventually change into the world. If we're looking at God, you know, the Bible says we're going to be transformed from glory to glory, right? But the problem is if we're so casual with God, that we think that God looks like us. How many people have you ever met that it seems like God never disagrees with them? God's always on their side. God, they, they never have an issue and God thinks like they think, right? If that's you, I would cause you to just pause for just a moment and say maybe you have created a God in your own image. Because if God always agrees with us, if we never have to think, if we never have to change our opinion about something that's going on, then maybe we've created a God in our own image who thinks like us, acts like us. And, and the problem with that is if we see God in our own image, we don't have to change to ever feel godly. And so we can just live like what we want to. 
when we have no fear or awe or reverence of a holy God. And so what happens is many of us end up operating out of a fear of man or fear of what the world thinks or fear of what others think or fear of being found out rather than operating on a, out of the fear of God. Proverbs chapter 29 verse 25 says, the fear of man brings a snare or we could call it a trap, right? Fear of man brings a trap, but whoever leans on, trusts in, puts his confidence in, the Lord is safe and set on high. See, the sphere of man is when you, you cower, you bend your, your, uh, your perception or your, uh, your, your brand, we could call it, or what other people think of you. You're always trying to manage that out of a fear of what people think or how, trying to please other people or trying to avoid conflict, trying to avoid confrontation. You want to always be trying to please other people. Then what happens is we end up, some of us are, are so afraid of offending people, we end up offending God with our life. Because we're trying to constantly manage everything else, right? So when you, who you fear is who you'll serve. If you fear man, you will spend your life finding ways to safeguard, to protect, to appease, to please, and ultimately serve others' purpose for your life. But if you fear God, you will spend your life trying to know him and his ways and yielding your life to his ways. And whenever you come across something, you don't just go along with it because that's what everybody's saying, but you actually take it before God and say, God, you are, I, I, I recognize that your thoughts are not always my thoughts. And that your ways are not always my ways. So, Lord, help me to see. See, that's an awe and a reverence for God, right? So the fear of the Lord actually keeps us out of going into a ditch or into a trap. All right, so one more, one more clip from John Bevere. He's going to help, see, uh, help us see what those ditches are and how the fear of the Lord helps us avoid them. Let's watch. If you look at King Solomon, he had the fear of the Lord. Therefore, he walked in the wisdom of God because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of understanding. He walked in the wisdom of God, but he lost it. He married too many wives. His wives turned his heart away from God, and then he became a madman. He said, life is vanity. Everything, what goes around, comes around. What goes around, comes around. But at the very end of his life, he came back to his senses. He came back to God. And you know what he said at the very end? This is the conclusion of all of life. Fear God and keep his commandments. In other words, what he's saying is, I had the fear of the Lord, I lost it. But now I've realized that it is the most important thing in life. If you look at Psalm 19 verse nine, it says the fear of the Lord is clean. There's a purifying effect to it. The fear of the Lord is clean and it endures forever. One day <clears throat> we had had a powerful manifestation of the fear of the Lord in Malaysia. And I'm in my hotel room the next day. And I remember the people that were there, the, the building was jam-packed. It was the largest Bible school in the country. Pastors had come from all over. And this Bible school student looked at me and said, I feel so clean. And I said, man, I do too. And the next morning, I was, I was just going through my prayer time in the hotel room in Malaysia. And the Holy Spirit said, read Psalm 19. And I got to that ninth verse and it said, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. And the Holy Spirit spoke to me and he said, son, Lucifer led worship right at my throne. He didn't fear me. He didn't endure forever. A third of the angels were around my throne. They didn't fear me. They didn't endure forever. He said, Adam and Eve walked in my very presence in the garden. They didn't fear me. They didn't endure in the garden forever. Every created being that surrounds the throne of God throughout eternity will be tested in the holy fear of God. 
This is why it's so important that we as believers love God and we fear God. You see, Jesus said the road to life is a narrow road and every road has two ditches on both sides. The first ditch on the road to life, you know what that ditch is called? Legalism. And you know what delivers us from the ditch of legalism? The love of God. You know, the church was in a legalistic ditch in the 60s and 70s, but we found out that God was our father and he loves us. That love delivered us out of that ditch of legalism. But you know what we did? We swung the pendulum. We went to the other side and we fell into the other ditch and that ditch is called lawlessness, an excessive fleshly worldly lifestyle. The fear of the Lord keeps us from that ditch. A healthy Christian life is a Christian life that is based on the love for God and our fear of God. When we operate in those two virtues, we come into a very intimate relationship with God and you can't be sent into the world as an ambassador of the kingdom if you don't have an intimate relationship with God. Good stuff there. All right, which leads us to this last thing that if, you're, if, if the Holy Spirit has revealed something in your life right now, which I'm assuming it's for all of us, right? There's, there's something that is being highlighted maybe. I want you to understand that restoration only comes through Jesus. You can't get there any other way. You can't be restored back any other way. A.W. Tozier said famously that what you think about God is the most important thing about you. In other words, the way you see God, it affects everything else. It affects you know, how you interact. It affects what happens next. And so that's why it's important whenever we read Scripture that we read it with the Holy Spirit because Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 and 27, if you're struggling with something and you read this, sometimes there's a temptation for us to get into a ditch. And it says this, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, okay, you've received the knowledge of the truth, but you go on sinning deliberately, it says there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. If you're struggling with something today and you read that, there's a big question like, whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> if I've been sinning, does that mean there's no more sacrifice? There's, I mean, that's what the Bible says. So what do we do with this scripture? Satan loves to use, by the way, here's what I want you to understand. Satan loves to use scripture. He loves to use scripture to justify all kinds of wrong theology, all kinds of wrong activity. But he also loves to use scripture to twist it. He did against Jesus, he'll do it against you. And so he loves to use scriptures like this in particular to malign believers, to get believers to pull away from God instead of leaning into God. And so I would say it this way, if you're reading a scripture and you come across a scripture and it seems to contradict the basic message of all of the rest of scripture, it's possible that you're reading it wrong. And so what you do with that is you don't just cherry pick the verse and, and say, well, that's what that, you, you zoom out, you get with the Holy Spirit, you get with community, you, you begin to pray and you say, well, what is this scripture actually saying? And a lot of times what I will do when I come across something like this is I will start with what I know and what I know it's not. Because if I can start there with the things I do know and the things I know it's not, I can help be very helpful in narrowing it down to possibly what it is. And so what I know this scripture is not saying because of all the rest of scripture, it's not saying that you get saved and follow Jesus and only the sins that were committed before salvation, there's a sacrifice for. 
But after you follow Jesus and you say yes to Jesus, if you keep in sin after that, there's no more sacrifice. I know it's not saying that. Why? Because the prodigal son, if that were true, he never would have came back home, right? And then also we know in 1 John chapter 1, the, the scripture says the intention is that you never sin, but if you do sin. How many of you guys know we have an advocate before the Father in Jesus Christ? So even after, he was talking to Christians, right? And so we know it's not saying that only sins before salvation get, there's a sacrifice for, but after that, if you sin after that, you're out of luck and you, all you get is punishment. We know that's not what it's saying. So what does it mean? Well, sometimes you've got to keep reading to figure out what it means. And if we keep reading, it gives us some context in verse 28. It says, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses, dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So he begins to lay out this case that remember what it was like in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant. In the law of Moses, here's how things worked, right? And it says, how much worse a punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? So you've got the way of the Old Covenant, and then what do you think it's going to be like in the new covenant? Who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. Law, grace. He's painting the picture of the difference between law and grace. He's talking about people who totally turn from God and who reject God. What he's saying is this, that if you were under the old covenant and you sinned and you kept sinning, Well, all you have to do is wait around because there's another sacrifice that's going to come at least once a year. You're going to get a sacrifice for the priest. But then there's also these particular sacrifices that come that would atone for your sins along the way, even specific types of sins. And so under the old covenant, what would happen is if you sin and you kept sinning, there would be an atonement coming. You would just have to wait, and there'd be another atonement around the corner that was coming. But what he's saying is that in the new covenant, There are no more sacrifices coming. The only sacrifice is Jesus. He came once and for all. And so if you want to go back to the old way and to try to to do things the old way and to bypass Jesus in, in order to be restored, there's nothing else coming. It's either Jesus or nothing. It's Jesus or judgment. It's Jesus or punishment. Jesus is the only way. There's not another sacrifice coming. What he's highlighting here is that sometimes when we fail or we fall, the temptation is to try to live back into the old covenant and to try to make another sacrifice, usually by our own works, usually by our own way. And he's saying that's not how it works anymore. The only way for restoration, if you're in an issue right now, the only way is Jesus. This is not an invitation to be careless. This is simply saying that there's no other options for you now. It's Jesus and Jesus alone, right? And so if you, if the Holy Spirit has highlighted something to you today that you maybe are living in a certain compartment and you need to be free from that, I want you to understand, you're not going to get there by your own effort. The only way is to come to Jesus, is to come to the cross. The only way is to come to repentance to to Jesus. He's the only salvation for our sins. He's the one we run to for help in time of need. We don't run away from him because we're scared of God. We actually run to him because when we find ourselves in a time of need, we know that we're terrified to be further away from God than what we already have been, right? So Jesus is there at breakfast with the disciples and he, he gets Peter there and, and he's 
he begins to talk to him. I'm just going to close up with the worship team as they can come back now, but let's last scripture. It says, Jesus said to Peter the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? How many of you guys know why did Jesus say this to him a third time, right? Because it was three times that Peter denied Jesus. And for every time that Peter denied Jesus, Jesus came back and gave him an opportunity to be restored. And he says to him a third time, do you love me? And it says Peter was grieved. Now, I think Peter was grieved possibly because he's in front of his friends and he's kind of having this moment in front of everybody. And he's possibly grieved that, that Jesus has to do this, but he's also probably grieved because he knows why Jesus is doing this. And he understands the weight of what is happening in this moment. And he said to him, he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. See, the only way back, Peter couldn't go back to fishing and to try to just do things the way he used to do it. The only way back was through Jesus. The only way back for restoration is through Jesus. You can't earn it. You can't buy it. You can't borrow for it. You can't work hard enough for it. You can't be good enough for it. The only way is to surrender back to Jesus. Now, some of you may be like, last week, you know, I said Jesus is our source. He's all of our source. And some of you might be frustrated from time to time that it's like, it seems like, well, you're preaching one thing. All you do is just preach Jesus. Yeah, I just preach Jesus. Because he is our source. So you're going to hear me preach a thousand different ways on a thousand different topics of a thousand different possibilities about how Jesus is the answer. Because he is the answer. And in this case, if you find yourself in this trap of compromise, Jesus, once again, is the answer. He's the one we run to. And I just want to encourage you to lean into this. Because, you know, I used this example last night, but I think it was, what was it, 2015, when the Royals won the, I, I forgot what it was last night, the championship, the world championship. That's how far disconnected I was from this. Which illustrated... What I wanted, my, my point here is that how many of you guys have been Royals fans like all of your life? Just, just let me see who you are. All right, some of you guys have. I know you guys. And so there was a what? Like a 30-year drought, right? 30-year drought. You guys had a bad time. I mean, just a lot of long, <laughs> long days there, right? And, um, but what's interesting is I didn't have that. I didn't experience, because I'm not a baseball fan. I didn't experience what you guys experienced. Those of you guys are diehards, and you're, you know, after 1985, your life just, you know, you went into, a, a, yeah, a lot of stuff. And, <laughs> and so you experienced some pretty low lows, right? Right. I never experienced it. I've just never experienced it. But then when, when it gets into the playoffs or whatever they call it, and... They start winning and they start going. And you guys are like, man, this is awesome. Guess what happened? I'm like, this is awesome. Everybody's excited. It's good for our city. I'm excited. Like, I'm gonna watch this stuff. And when they, when they won, you know, I watched the whole thing. And when they won, I celebrated. I went to the parade. But I can tell you this, I didn't experience this win and this whole excitement the way some of you guys did. Because I just didn't have a dog in the fight. I just wasn't that interested, right? And I say that because that's kind of the way it is spiritually at times. If we avoid the deep work that God wants to do in us, and we just don't go there, 
Yeah, we miss out on some of those hard things, right? But I can tell you, if we avoid the deep work that God wants to do, we also miss out on the extreme joy that comes. See, some, some of us spiritually are, are like me as a baseball fan. It's like, eh, I didn't really experience the lows, but I didn't really experience the joys. And so some of us are wondering why we're kind of flatlined spiritually. Could it possibly be that we haven't allowed God to come into these deep areas that need some work in our life? And could it be possible that if we would allow him into these deep areas, that we would also experience an immense joy that we've never experienced as well? That's how it works, right? And so I wanna invite you, just as we close, would you stand up with me? Let's just ask the Holy Spirit, are there any areas of our life where we've fallen into this trap of compromise, whether it's small or, or, or big? The only way is freedom in Christ. And so I wanna dare you this week to appropriately, maybe before God or maybe with the appropriate people or in the appropriate way, just dare you to bring something into the light. Because whenever you bring something into the light, darkness loses all of its power. And so one thing we can do this week is to bring something into the light. And so I'm just gonna pray as we close here to, God, would you give us this awe and this reverence of you? Lord, we wanna be so close to you. We wanna walk in the love of God. We know that you're a loving Father and we can interact with you that way. But Lord, we also know that you're an awe-filled, holy God. And we can interact with you in reverence, in wonder, and Lord, would you restore in us the awe and the reverence and the wonder for who you are. And may that draw us closer to you in deeper relationship with you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's worship.